taken from Matthew chapter 11, reading from verse 25, and can be found on page 977. Chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit, uh, that we would meet Jesus as we look at this extract and that we would be changed. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Which is very nice to hear. It's terrifying being interviewed by a guy because you never quite know what he's going to ask you. (laughs) He gives you no indication beforehand, and I have great sympathy with those interviewed by Jeremy Paxman and others on the television. Probably, of course, dates me, doesn't it? Uh, But uh, anyway, it's lovely to be here. One of the things I did when I came here uh, as a curate was to start an evening service because uh, that seemed to be what God was wanting us to do. So it's marvellous that the evening service still happens here at this church. Church of England, of course, I'm just checking the time. Guy was very good in his email. He said, you have between 22 and 25 minutes in the morning, which probably means about 23 and a half. You may speak for one more minute than that in the evening. So I just need to know exactly where I stand before I start. And of course, it gives you that uh, great sense of relief that no matter how bad this sermon is, there is a very clear end point to which you just have to wait patiently. Church of England is really an extraordinary uh, place, and unless you're in a church like this, being led by Guy, who I remember when we met on this retreat, I thought, my goodness, he's impressive, isn't he? And he's going to St. Michael's Chester Square, and we had a little chat on this retreat. I thought, goodness, this is really a man of the future. Uh, we need some of those, because the Church of England, on the whole, is a um, slightly odd institution, which I love, I have to say. The nice theological college, I thought, is barking mad, but, you know, when you get into your 60s, you become rather sentimental about the Church of England. One of the little jobs which you do if you've, you know, been reasonably well-behaved for about 20 years in the Church of England is you become something called an area dean, which is, of course, of no consequence at all, but you're meant generally to kind of pop up and keep people happy, which um, I was, when I was area dean of the City of London, I tried to do in various ways. One of the things that occurred when I was area dean of the City of London was that a lot of churches that have been bombed in the war were celebrating 50 years since they were reconsecrated after they'd been rebuilt in the light of the bombing that happened in the Second World War. And the area dean of the city uh, used to have to go and meet whatever VIPs were going to come and be present. And, you know, you get people like um, 
well, a whole lot of them. And one day I had to go to St. Bride's Fleet Street, and the VIP that day was going to be Her Majesty the Queen. So I was slightly kind of, it was uh, slightly anxious. It was one of those surreal days, though, Wednesday lunchtime in the church of which I'm vicar. We have an informal service with a band and drums and prayer ministry and teaching. So to move mentally from that uh, to a service appropriate for the sovereign was quite a big thing. Anyway, I went and dressed up like a Christmas tree and stood on the church drive waiting to receive her. I'd received from St. James's Palace all these instructions about what I was to do, what I was to say, what I was to call her first of all, what I was to call her after that, and who I was to introduce her to, and everything like that. And it went, oh, I just thought, my goodness, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to help me remember all of this, because I obviously couldn't be consulting it and ticking it off when she arrived. Anyway, about uh, 15 seconds before she was due to arrive, we saw the blue flashing lights and the police cars and everything, and she came in and she got out of... um, uh, her car and um, the Lord Lieutenant met her and then brought her to where I was standing halfway up uh, the, dr- the churchyard and said, uh, Your Majesty, this is the area dean of the City of London. Made me sound like, you know, this ecumenical patriarch of Moscow. Uh, but she looked at me and realized that I wasn't. And uh, she came up and she'd been quite serious. And as we talked, she smiled. And she has the most wonderful smile. And she was easy to talk to as I took her right out. She transformed both how I felt and the situation. And then I had to introduce her to different people uh, with different jobs before the service uh, began. I saw the real person at that moment and she changed how I felt and the situation. And as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, this person who called himself gentle and who calls us to reflect his gentleness, he looks at you and me and wants to change us and the situations in which we find ourselves. He calls us to be changed and to be different. We're reflecting on that quality of gentleness, on that part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a quality often preached about, actually, but one clearly present in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his gentleness when he engaged with the Samaritan woman, as John records in chapter 3 of his Gospel. We saw that same gentleness as he approached the widow of Nain and raised her only son uh, from the dead. Uh, We saw his gentleness in the way that he dealt with the Apostle Peter after his resurrection, commissioning and restoring him after the spiritual disasters that started in the Garden of Gethsemane and carried on for the following few days. And in these verses from Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus describes himself as gentle. And the more we reflect on these verses, the more we understand what that actually means. It's not a call to be feeble, 
For there is a real strength in gentleness, but it is a call to be distinctive because it's a call to reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at these verses, we see, first of all, we see the Lord Jesus speaking of the God who surprises. In verses 25 and 26 of the extract that was read for us. At that time, the extract begins. Lord Jesus only just finished a tour of preaching and doing miracles throughout those lakeside towns and have been both amazed and surprised by the almost total lack of serious spiritual response. People have been happy to witness miracles. People have been excited by what he did. But there had been a spiritual hardness that resisted any personal change. But the Lord Jesus had seen beyond his own surprise to the bigger picture of his heavenly father's plan as outlined in the second part of verse 5. He was excited and delighted about that. We see it there. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. His heavenly father hadn't been expecting those who might have naturally been in the vanguard spiritually, but made the surprising decision to engage with the most unlikely people. The Lord Jesus talked about them as children, which is both a, a, natural meta, a natural reference and a spiritual metaphor. Those who were trusting enough uh, to recognize God at work, open enough to get on board with what he's doing, willing to take risks, as children often do. You and I are also God's surprising choice. In each of us, he's seen that childlikeness which speaks of a similar potential which his grace was able to release. The more we know of ourselves, the more honest we can be with ourselves, the more amazed we are at Jesus' grace and generosity. On the day recorded in this extract, the Lord Jesus uh, responded as he did because he glimpsed his father's bigger plan, a plan that eclipsed the disappointment and the frustration of that preaching tour through the lakeside times. And if we are going to work with the Holy Spirit to display a Christ-like gentleness, it starts with a fresh astonishment of the love of God for you and me displayed in Jesus Christ. 
we often, when we worship, well, I hardly like to say that to you because you all look so serene and holy, but I know I'm often, when I worship, uh, sometimes so love it that, I, that, that, that the extraordinary truth of the words I'm singing passes me by. It never happened in Guy's life, but it occasionally happens in mine. And how extraordinary was that verse in that uh, song that Daniel led? Speaking of Jesus, it says, He took my sin and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. There was a gentleness on the cross which didn't react to the mockery of the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowd. For there was a strength that remained there in order to redeem all God had created. And to sing of grace like that begins to allow the Holy Spirit to change us, to dissolve our pride, our wrong concerns with image or the opinions of others, that hardness of heart which can creep up on us unnoticed And it leaves us seeking to reflect more the values, the qualities valued by the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek his perspective and to seek his heart. The challenge as we mature as Christians is not to lose the qualities we see in Jesus, not to lose his heart. Everyone here, I think, is too young to remember Lord Hailsham. He was Lord Chancellor of England. His father had been Lord Chancellor, too. And uh, he was a distinguished public figure. He was elected as MP for Oxford in 1938 and was at the heart of public life until he died. And uh, he was a difficult man, by all accounts, a brilliant lawyer, but a difficult man. He used to sit on the woolsack in the House of of Lords, and whenever a bishop stood up, he used to say rather loudly, this is a very boring man, uh, which would obviously put them off, and then another bishop would stand up, he'd say exactly the same thing. But in his biography, he wrote of his final meeting with Winston Churchill. He met him in the smoking room of the House of Commons and uh, was invited to supper by Churchill at home that evening. And uh, he writes, I expected a party, but when I got there, it was the two of us. You remember that we both had American mothers and spoke movingly about all his life. He'd worked and dreamed of Anglo-American friendship. We sipped our champagne, uh, Hailsham wrote. Little budgery guard, Toby, was left out of his cage and flew about the room and lighted from time to time on Winston's head. He had dinner and then moved into another room for brandy. I asked him, he asked me, do you believe in the afterlife? Why, yes, Winston, I do. There was a long silence. Hersham said, you remember, Winston, when you were at the bottom of the coal mine in South Africa, on the run, as an escaped prisoner of war? Yes, he said. You said you prayed for help then. And it always came. It was evident that his soul was clad in dust and ashes. 
And remember, Winston, that all over the world, millions of men and women who remember all you have done will always bless your name, and I am one. Long silence. We parted warmly. It was the last time I saw him alive. As I went back in the taxi to my home in Roehampton, I cried at the dark moment of despair which had befallen this giant among men. Unashamed to admit in print that he had caught the heart of God and wept over a man who at that point was far from his saviour. Hailsham was not known to be emotional, but Jesus and his gentleness and his love changes us totally. Lord Jesus speaks firstly of a God who surprises, and secondly of the God who reaches out of us, as he does in verses 27 to 30 and who reaches us out to us with the quality of gentleness that Jesus uses to describe himself. This engagement with us begins with a summary of his mission in verse 27 and continues with an invitation in verse 28. He never forces us. He always invites us. The gentleness we see in Jesus and he longs to see in us never tries to control, never diminishes people, never undermines them or robs them of their dignity as human beings because, of course, we're made in the image of God. Working in the city of London, one's constantly aware of what's happening in one's parish. Deutsche Bank, a big German bank, is in my parish. It has been inevitable for the last three years that change needed to happen in that bank, change at the top as well as change in various divisions in the bank. And, of course, you will have um, had to have had your head in the sand not to have noticed all that's happened in the last three weeks in that particular bank and the shock that it sent through uh, the banking sector. The changes and redundancies were inevitable. What was appalling about it was the way it was done. It robbed people of dignity and treated them in a subhuman way. Person after person spoke about how dreadful it was. And we, of course, I can sit in judgment on that but it's a reminder that we need to examine ourselves. Here we see Jesus reaching out, believing the choice to us. He takes the initiative. He longs to engage and does so because he sees we're feeling weary and burdened. The weary are those for whom life has been quite demanding those who've known the fruit of success or achievement, but also its cost 
those who've known the frustration of caring, the sadness that flows sometimes from relationships that haven't worked out, the loneliness that can come with ambition, the anxiety about the future, the hopelessness and lassitude that accompanies a sense of failure. He reaches out to the weary. He reaches out too to the burdened and the Lord Jesus chose his words carefully because the burdened are very different people. They're those for whom their faith has not fulfilled its promise, who are teetering on the edge of being burnt out spiritually, who've never felt quite good enough, never felt they lived up to God's expectations, who struggled with specific sins and have never yet mastered them, whose experience of the Holy Spirit seems so meager in comparison with others, those for whom a sense of duty has taken over as the defining characteristic of their Christian life rather than a response of love. And whether we're feeling weary or burdened, the Lord Jesus says, I come to give you rest. That lifting of wrong pressure, of crippling disappointment, the recovery of that life to the full, which the Lord Jesus himself said he'd come to bring, That's a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit who brings love, acceptance, forgiveness, and confidence. I wonder how many of us are living with that rest when we define it like that. How many of us, weariness and burden, has become the defining characteristic of our life? can seem, though, can't it, when we think of what's on offer, all too good to be true, all too elusive to experience. How can we see the gentleness of God in this promise of restoration? How can we access it? We see the answer in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you, the Lord Jesus says. His contemporaries, this would initially have sent a very mixed message. The yoke of being faithful to the laws interpreted by the religious leaders of the day had been an oppressive burden to many. Jesus, though, describes his burden, his yoke, as easy and light. The yoke that human beings used was meant to help. And the way Jesus speaks of it, speaks of partnership. We're not doing this alone, we're doing it with him. Speaks of guidance, he says, learn from me. I'm here to help, be attentive to me. It's a gentleness that frees us from feeling overwhelmed or uncertain is a gentle yoke which helps us in everyday life. 
one of the people, one of the organizations, one of the parishes where I work is the Bank of England. I have quite a lot to do with them because they're our nearest neighbor, and it's like popping in for tea with the neighbor. And when you go in, if you're going to see someone, you know, you go in and you go into the reception area and you get a pass and you go either to a meeting room or a canteen or whatever. It's all very simple. It's very different when you go and see the governor. Then you're met at the door by someone in his private office. No kind of going into reception is necessary or whisked along the marble corridors uh, with these extraordinary... um, uh, floor floor of uh, which is there and then suddenly you go through a rather nondescript door probably some of you have been there go through a nondescript door and it's completely different instead of overhead lights it's side lights there are carpets there are pictures there's a quietness instead of a noise there are different rooms going off I, Mark Carney the present governor is my third governor and uh, I was going to talk about a service in which both he was going to do something and I was going to lead. And I was taken along there, put in the governor's waiting room, then taken into his private office where all his minions were at work, and then through to see him. Uh, and um, it's very interesting. I went in after all the kind of planoply that was meant to intimidate and there was he sitting uh, at his desk, who just said, Oh, Jeremy, I'm so glad you've come, because we need to sort this out. And we talked about what he was going to do in the next few minutes as we went through to this service. He was quiet. He was kind. He was humble. I grew in confidence. We met a few times, but never on a project like this. I felt what I received from him gave me a freedom and confidence about what I then had to go and do in this great event in the bank. It's what Jesus wants us to experience. We encounter him, and his gentleness frees us and builds us up. For you know, still we ask, can we be certain? In the second part of verse 29, the Lord Jesus says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for yourselves you'll find that deep restoring work of the Spirit that will give us the confidence to go on and do exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He will transform us and we'll find ourselves beginning to care because we want others to experience what we have from the Lord Jesus. We treat others with respect and delight in their gifts, not threatened by them so we don't have to score points, but valuing and embracing their opinions and input. We're confident enough to look at ourselves, see the times when we've hurt people by not being gentle, understand why and how we could have been different. By the time you get to 64, as I am, 
There are always those moments in the night when you think, I could have encouraged that curate more. I could have helped that person who was really disappointed with life. But I hadn't received from Jesus what I needed to do what he would have done. My call to a partnership with him. His yoke is easy. And the word he uses comes up quite expectedly, I think, from the carpentry business. And the yokes that the carpenters made, and of which Jesus refers here, are those that are a perfect fit. They wouldn't chafe. They wouldn't scratch. They wouldn't leave people being sore. There's no one size fit all. What Jesus provides is a perfect fit for you and for me. It gives us a freedom to learn from him, to walk with him. A freedom to be gentle because we're free from wrong ambitions, from needing to impress, from using others and not loving them, from the sins that eat away at us, from the sense of jealousy and failure that can so easily harden us. This perfectly fitting yoke is what Jesus wants to give to the weary and the burdened. And we are liberated. A few weeks ago I prayed for someone in our church in the city um, uh, and uh, you know, 28, impressive, doing well, third job, quite honestly said to me, so I move jobs when I can get much more money uh, and I've always got much more money each time I've moved. Because I was brought up as a the son of a vicar, and I don't want to live the rest of my life with very little money. Uh, and uh, he always looks so impressively dressed. He's as bright as a button. He came up, and I've had his permission to tell the story. He came up, and um, he said to me, I'm doing well, but I'm not really making any impact for Jesus And I think quite a few people I work with probably don't even think that I'm a Christian. They think I'm really good. They don't think I'll stay. They're interested in what I say. But I doubt they even think that I could possibly be a believer. He said, will you pray that Jesus will change me so I can make an impact? Well, I suppose we're into miracles. So I prayed quite fervently, actually, because I liked the chap. And um, a few weeks later, he came up for prayer again with another chap. He said, Jeremy, this is my boss. He isn't a Christian. But um, I invited him to church, and he's come. Because the city is the city. His boss wasn't many years older than he was. He looked terribly young to me. And um, we prayed for him that day. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus. 
And the first chap is reading the Bible with him once a week in whichever meeting room they can book in the bank where they work. Change in us to reflect more of Jesus releases change in others. And tonight, he just says to you and me, I would love to do even more than I've done in you in the past. I'd love us to be in partnership with a perfectly fitted yoke.